Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor. A few years ago, I interviewed Icelandic comedian-turned-politician Jon Gnar. He's a household name in Iceland. Against all the odds, he'd been elected mayor of Reykjavik. By the time I talked to him, his term as mayor was over, he'd written a book, and he was at a loose end. I asked him, what's next? I will definitely go to Texas. That took me aback. But I'm not sure what I'm going to do there. <laughs> On the face of it, Gnar is about as un-Texan as they come. His issues are anarchism, pacifism, and climate change. He likes making big, bold statements. Ah, there's the Texan in him. Another Texan trait, fighting the government. His dispute with the Icelandic government over his name Gnar isn't traditionally Icelandic, and so he's not allowed to use it on his passport. This dispute has lasted so long, with so many bitter turns, that today it might actually count as a saga. I have noticed that many of my followers on Facebook, for instance, are from Texas. So uh, I'll definitely have to go there and talk to the Texans. And he did that. Yomgnar became a writer-in-residence at Rice University. He did something else in Texas, too. He finally got his name officially changed. It required an FBI background check to make sure he wasn't trying to conceal a possibly criminal identity. He was just a little crestfallen to hear that he had no criminal record. But in celebration of the Texas court's decision, he got a new tattoo on his right forearm, a geographical outline of his favorite U.S. state. Yonganar has left Texas now and become a vegan. I don't know if there's a connection. And it's not just Icelandic mayors with big personalities who are fascinated by the Lone Star State. People all over the world are. In fact, the word Texas, it pops up in a bunch of languages, like Norwegian. Hail Texas. Hail Texas, literally completely Texas which is used when you want to convey that a situation is totally chaotic and out of control. This is Persian. It means it's not Texas here, meaning there are rules here and you need to observe them. It's not the Wild West. If you call a neighborhood Texas, you're calling it unsafe. You could be dead anytime. You should be very careful. You should not mess with scary, dangerous people. This guy, by the way, he's called Reza Jamiran. And just like Jon Gnar, going to Texas for the first time was a big deal for him. When he got there, he called his family back in Iran to say, you know, I'm in Texas, for real. I wanted to see what's their reaction. Would they say, like, be careful? <laughs> they were fine, as it turned out. Even back in Iran, they know the real Texas isn't as dangerous as the imagined one. Okay, so what is the real Texas? And how much of that comes across in the way Texans speak? Is the Texan accent the most authentically American one or the most inauthentic one? From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, a podcast about languages and the people who speak them. I'm Patrick Cox. Today, we have the final part in our series, We Speak, about accents and identity and bias, as well as talking Texas 
We'll also hear about ways of overcoming speech discrimination, so that in a job interview, say, someone from San Antonio stands as much chance of getting the job as someone from Greenwich, Connecticut. First, though, native Texan Tina Toby. What most people know of the Texas accent, they got from TV. Oh, I'd like to, Dave. I really would, but uh, somebody's got to mind the store. You see, my daddy and I handed the reins of Ewing oil over to an amateur once before and almost lost the whole shooting match. The 80s TV drama Dallas brought the Ewing family all over the world. J.R., Bobby, Daddy, and Miss Ellie flooded the airwaves with family rivalries, cattle ranching, and a lot of drinking and fighting. In 1991, I traveled to the Soviet Union. When my host family found out I was from Texas, the only things they wanted to know about were how big my oil fields were, the name of my horse, and all about tumbleweeds. I don't know anything about tumbleweeds. I grew up in the suburbs of Houston. Only reason I've ever been on a horse is because of summer camp. I was not a TV Texan. In the entire American South, you can ask anybody what the biggest stereotype of their dialect is, and they will say the same two things anywhere you go, and it's y'all and fixin' to. This is Lars Henricks. He is the director of the Texas English Language Lab and associate professor of English and linguistics at the University of Texas. He is also not a TV Texan, but a transplant from Germany. I got my degree at the University of Freiburg, including my PhD, but I did do a, a year abroad as a Fulbright student at the University of North Carolina. And then also, as a junior in high school, I spent one year in Alabama. So every time I went abroad to the U.S., I ended up in the, in the South. You know, I always put in the questionnaire, where would you like to go? And I always, like everybody else, I said, New York, Florida, California. And then they always place you in <clears throat> Alabama. When the job at the University of Texas opened up, Lars's knowledge of the U.S. South and his interest in dialect research made him the perfect fit. His first day on the job, he got a note from a retiring colleague in the linguistics department. He emailed me and said, I left some stuff for you in my old office. It was hundreds of old tapes, um, reel-to-reels and cassettes and stuff. And some of them had paperwork, others didn't, and gramophone records. So it was like a collection that had been passed on through generations of linguists. And so, no, I was sitting with it. It fell on me to take it into the next century and start digitizing. The result is the Texas English Linguistics Lab, with hundreds of recordings dating all the way back to 1934. The bulk of the recordings were collected by another linguist, Rudolph Willard. He drove around Texas, which was a lot harder in the 30s, and with his, uh, must have been a huge clunky bit of equipment, and he recorded in churches, he recorded choirs and people in their homes, as well as asking people if they can read a passage. Horace was 20 years old. He hadn't attended school since he was 10. The story of Horace was written specifically to highlight the different ways people talk. Horace didn't know much about literature, but he liked poetry. He enjoyed reading Milton out loud. He particularly liked Omar. He used to declaim verses like the following, The bird of time has but a little way to flutter, and the bird is on the wing. There are recordings from German immigrants who left Europe in the late 1800s. They were looking for a better quality of life and following the promise of land grants. My favorite are a series of recordings from Texas Baptist churches in the 1940s. 
to have mercy upon human race, my father, melt down stony hearts, and give ease to that droopy head. My father, The recordings sound sweet and down home, but to my ears, they're not nearly as Texan as the voices I grew up with on TV. People like Texas Governor Ann Richards. I'm delighted to be here with you this evening because after listening to George Bush all these years, I figured you needed to know what a real Texas accent sounds like. Richards was on the national stage, but there were locals that stuck with me even more. At Gallery Furniture, we're Houston proud. Mattress Mac was known not only for his cheesy furniture commercials, but also his charity work. He was one of the many outsized TV personalities from my childhood. Fajitas meat was off the required temperature. Marvin Zindler was on Channel 13 for decades. And the buffet did not have a sneeze guard to protect food against contamination. Zindler broke up the chicken ranch brothel in the 70s, but most memorably for me was his rat and roach report. Any restaurants that failed health inspections made it into his report. And I loved it when he would sing out. Slime in the ice machine. He said slime in the ice machine. So where does this leave me and my accent? Since my early years in Houston, I haven't lived in Texas much. Massachusetts has been home for more than 20 years. I'm not sure I have or really ever had a Texas accent. When you said those words, you definitely had a little bit of a Texas accent going on, for sure. I think also when you say Texas, you say Texas instead of Texas. Like you're, it's a Z instead of an S at the end, which sounds pretty Texas to me. And apparently I'm mistaken. And it's not just my speech that belies my birth. When asked where I'm from, I'll say Massachusetts, but then quickly follow up that I was born in Texas. People think of Texas first before they think of the United States because it is so ingrained in who they are as a person. Erica Brozowski is an associate linguist at the University of Texas in Austin. She's from Massachusetts, not too far from where I live now. She and I switched places. I came north for college and haven't left. She ended up in Texas for university and fell in love with Austin. I have never seen so many state flags before as I do in Texas. Like, I would never wear the Massachusetts state flag. Like, you don't wear that, but Texas, it's like everywhere. No, I don't wear the flag, but I do have one hanging in our garage. I have Texas kitchen towels, Texas signs on my office wall, and a Texas-shaped cast iron pot. You can take the girl out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the girl. But if you're not from there, is it really a big deal? Texas is not studied enough, in my personal opinion and also my professional opinion. And there's a whole lot to study. Mexico and the Spanish language have long influenced Texas and the Texan accent. But over time, Texas existed under six flags in its recorded history. Spain, France, Mexico, the Republic of Texas, the Confederate States of America, and the USA. That, of course, doesn't include the Native Americans who lived in the state before all others laid claim to the land. There's a wide German influence that's evident in town names like Pflugerville and Fredericksburg. The Czechs brought my favorite breakfast treat, the kolache. Given the chance, I highly recommend you stop in the town of West to try them out. There's more. Erica, for example, is researching Taiwanese Texans at UT. Everything is coming together in Texas, and people are mixing together here in a way that they aren't in a lot of regions. And yes, there is still some like division in some areas, but you are seeing... It's like a melting pot of a lot of things going on. Honestly, it's fascinating. So I think, I think it's cool. Okay, so Texas is massively diverse. 
it's also just plain massive. Three Texas cities make the U.S. top 10 most populous list, but 83% of the state is farmland. I've directed more than one friend to the movie Bernie when trying to explain the regional differences. The dark comedy is set in the small town of Carthage. Carthage is in East Texas, and that's totally different from the rest of Texas, which could be five different states, actually. You got your West Texas out there with a bunch of flat ranches. Up north, you got some Dallas snobs with their Mercedes. We've got money and international business in the cities and farm and ranch in the country. And then in central Texas, you got the People's Republic of Austin with a bunch of hairy-legged women and liberal fruitcakes. And the Texas accent is as diverse as the state itself. Even within Texas, there's a lot of variation. So like East Texas has more of like a soft drawl. And then North Texas is more like that that twang. You're kind of like, eh, like that nasal. Um, West Texas has like the Southwestern influence. And then, you know, the Valley, there's a huge Spanish influence in the Valley. So there's a lot going on just in Texas language-wise. So people think of Texas, they're just like cowboys, whatever. Y'all, cowboys, done. The conservative Texas accent of English has a lot of markers of Southern American speech. Laura says it's all about the vowels in the traditional Texas accent. I notice uh, features such as the way that the I vowel turns to A, ah, you know, nas, wat, ras. Then you have features such as the, the, the oo vowel in words like food and move and goose is fronted. Now, I can avoid overpronouncing nas, wat, and rice. I can hear that, and I know that talking that way would put a finger on my birthplace. But not all vowels are as easy to manipulate. There are some features that people still do that I think of as being part of the Texas accent. So when you think of the words pin, like the head of a pin, and pen, like you write with a pen, some people say them the same. So it's called the pin-pen merger, so you would just say pan for both pin and pen. This is my biggest tell. Just last week, I was reading a book to my daughter. In it, a main character is given a tin airplane. I blew through the sentence quick, and Maddie stopped me cold. She was blown away that the boy got 10 airplanes for Christmas. It took several minutes for me to explain the difference. One is a metal, one is a number. Finally, she agreed she understood. However, throughout the day, she repeatedly asked how many tin planes the boy got for Christmas. Trying to say them differently gives me a bit of a headache. Yeah, for me, they're very different. Like, I, tin, ten, not tan. So I still have, and will always have, indications of my Texas upbringing in my accent. But both Erica and Lars think that the Texas accent is changing. It's going away. Eventually, it'll be gone, I'm sure, at some level. But I don't think that'll happen in our lifetimes. Not that everybody's going towards the same basic, boring, mainstream American accent. But it kind of is happening. Immigration, travel, and just exposure are leading us to softer versions of our regional accents. And language is all about being understood, so naturally. When you're Texan and you're in Houston and you're on a business call with Michigan, you don't want to sound just completely different. You want to sound maybe distinct and you, you want your own identity, but there's a lot of psychological and social advantages in not sounding too crassly different from the other person. This feels like my journey. I want enough accent to have an origin story, but not so much that I'm misunderstood or judged for my speech. 
And like many Texans, I know that a bit of a drawl can charm a crowd and make a whole lot of friends. Southerners are typically evaluated as kind and warm-hearted, good to be around, and then Northerners, they're the ones you would leave your money with, I guess, but not stay for the barbecue. So from this Texan, y'all are welcome to the barbecue anytime. Just don't bring sweet tea. Sugar and tea is not a Texas thing, but I suppose that's for another episode. Tina Toby, Texpat, and sound designer of this podcast. After the break, Kavita Pillay and I talk about the accent biases we all have and what we can do about it. Recently, I've been listening to a podcast that I want to recommend to you. It's called Resettled. It's about what it's like to restart your life as a refugee in America. It's expertly hosted by Ahmad Bada, himself a refugee from Iraq. Each episode focuses on a different aspect of the refugee experience, the moment of arrival, or graduating high school, or performing on stage in English, not your mother tongue. That's a good one for subtitle listeners. Listening to Resettled is like flipping the lens on America. All the absurd contradictions come into focus. And the people asking the smart questions They're the refugees. They're humanized here, a counterweight to how they've been portrayed by some in the corridors of power. And they tell powerful, compelling stories. Subscribe to Resettled wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Patrick, so here we are at the end of this mini-series on accents and identity and discrimination. And I feel like I have a handle on the identity side of this, that how we sound can be tremendously misleading and we shouldn't determine who we are or who others are based on how we sound. But the discrimination side of it, I'm not so clear on that. Yeah, me too. And and it may be because the law isn't so clear. It really isn't. I checked in with someone who knows all about this. She works in this area of U.S. law. My name is Melinda Coster. I'm an employment discrimination attorney at Sanford Heisler Sharp. That's a New York City firm. And, and I asked Melinda about what it takes to prove that accent discrimination has taken place. And she told me that to win an accent case, you have to prove that another form of discrimination has taken place. Maybe it's race-based, maybe it's gender, maybe it's disability, maybe it's national origin. That's actually the most common national origin. Melinda told me about a case from a few years ago at a Chevrolet dealer in Phoenix. A Nigerian employee there was told to go to speech therapy. Even though, as far as I understand it, he spoke English fluently and clearly, And when he was denied a promotion, that decision was announced in a meeting of about 40 to 50 people. The person who we sought the promotion from, in the context of a work meeting, announced that this person wouldn't be getting the promotion. Instead, the promotion was going to someone who was not Nigerian. And the person announced in this meeting that the Nigerian immigrant employee needed to talk more like an American. So it takes that level of evidence to actually win a case. 
So what if there's no other form of discrimination you can piggyback onto? Like if you're not foreign born or if race or disability or gender, what if those are not part of the case? Well, it becomes much trickier. I, I gave Melinda a hypothetical of, of a case like that to see what she thought. If I have a rural mid-Texas accent and I apply for a job in a big city on the East Coast and I don't sound the way that a lot of the people sound and, and I believe that I don't get the job or I don't get a promotion because I kind of sound hick, if I then go to you and I say, do I have any recourse here? What would you say? Well, based off of what you've shared so far, I don't see a case. Interesting. So no case because without any of these other forms of discrimination, accent discrimination on its own doesn't cut it? Right. I, I guess if social class was one of those recognized categories of discrimination... It might be different. That said, you might just have a case, at least in a few jurisdictions, where now, recently, there have been laws on the books that prohibit bullying. So, so if your boss is mocking your accent and encouraging co-workers also to do so, maybe, just, just maybe, there's a case to be answered if, you know, you're denied promotion or something. You know, accent discrimination, it seems so intertwined with so many other things. And that seems like part of what makes it so hard to pin down. Yeah, maybe it's also tough to pin down because we don't really know that much about how accent bias works, which is why I was excited to hear that this is being studied right now in the UK. The project is called Accent Bias in Britain, and the focus is job interviews. So the researchers selected more than a thousand people of all different races and regions and social classes and ages. And these people were asked to listen in on mock job interviews. They were told that they were hearing candidates who were applying for jobs in a major corporate law firm. They were all told that all the candidates they were all equally qualified for the post. This is Erez Levon. He's a sociolinguist at Queen Mary University of London, and he's the principal investigator of accent bias in Britain. So the only difference between the candidates was how they sounded? Yeah, they had one of five accents, some of those accents considered higher status than others. Mm -hmm. And what did the researchers find out? Well, they discovered that the survey respondents and, and how they actually assessed the interviewees, the assessments depended on their age. And we find that all the younger respondents don't actually make any distinctions between the five accents. So and basically, we're not seeing any evidence of bias among these younger respondents. As soon as we get above the age of 40 and, and certainly above the age of 45, that's when these bias effects really start to appear. So it's among the older respondents that we're really finding the significant downgrading. So at least according to this piece of research, the older you are, the more likely you are to be biased against lower prestige accents. Doesn't that suggest we're getting over our accent biases? I mean, younger generations don't care so much about accents as older people. That's what I thought too. But Eris said probably not. Not when you take into account similar research from the past. It's not that attitudes are changing, but it's that when you hit 40 or 45, you become, in a sense, more conservative and you become more judgmental about these accents. And that appears to be a stable pattern that's existed for the past uh, 40 or 50 years. 
So rather than actually it being good news that, that things are perhaps becoming more positive, it actually seems the opposite. And it seems to be more about people sort of deciding that there is a particular way that you need to speak. Ah, oh, that's depressing. Yeah, it is. But it's not all bad news. Erez and his colleagues, they did another survey where the participants, the, the people doing the assessments, weren't a cross-section of society, but just lawyers. And in that case, almost none of the lawyers, whether they were old or young, showed any bias. They didn't care about accents. So what's up with lawyers? Well, the researchers think it's because lawyers are trained to listen to words and arguments. They block everything else out. And so accent doesn't matter. And the thinking is, if lawyers can be trained to do this, well, so can just general job recruiters and human resources people, anyone who's going to have a say in who gets a job. And how does that happen? How do you overcome your own accent bias? Erez says that's also been studied. And he says it may not be as hard as we think to train job recruiters. For 30 seconds, you explain to somebody or you have them read a short document that talks about the fact that there is accent bias. Sometimes people are unfairly judged purely on the basis of how they speak as opposed to what it is that they're saying. And we showed in, in controlled experiments that that then reduces the difference in judgments that people give across accents. Okay, so that's kind of amazing because when it comes to overcoming something like racial bias, it takes a lot more than 30 seconds for people to get it. But it makes sense that it's easier for people to admit to their own accent biases than their own racism, right? It's just less fraught. So bring on more awareness about how we speak. Patrick, if someone had been doing this series like 60 or 70 years ago, they'd have spoken in an old-timey radio announcer accent. Like, now see, accent bias is a form of discrimination. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had never really thought about it in those terms. But yeah, it does make you wonder how our counterparts in the future might present how we speak. I mean, of course... The anxieties we have now about speech and bias and identity, they're going to be replaced by a whole new set of anxieties. It makes me think about how my own particular accent preferences and prejudices reflect the time and place in which I live. Right. I guess you and I also were a bit more aware of all of this because we just reported a series on it. We're we're hyper-aware right now. Yes, but remember, accent bias is not happening in a vacuum. It is intertwined with race, ethnicity, class, the workplace, all of our ideas about who belongs in a given setting and who doesn't. And of course, that changes over time too. But one thing I hope we can all agree on is that accents themselves aren't evil. We love accents, don't we? Right. I mean, who wants food that's just seasoned with salt and pepper? And who wants a world in which there's only a few acceptable accents? Yeah. And, you know, it's also not a good idea to try to suppress your accent. Miss Doolittle. Good afternoon, Professor Higgins. Ah, there's no getting away from my fair lady. I have to say, I love this particular scene from the movie. Do, Do you remember it? Yes. Yeah, like after Professor Higgins uh, has believed he's successfully coached Eliza Doolittle to suppress her Cockney accent, Reign in Spain and all of that. And here he is, 
showing her off to some of his well-to-do friends. And it goes so well at first. She sounds posh. It's perfect. The coaching seems to have paid off, but not for long. My aunt died of influenza, so they said. But it's my belief they'd done the old woman in. Done her in? Yes, Lord love you. Why should she die of influenza when she come through diphtheria right enough the year before? Fairly blue with it she was. They all thought she was dead, but my father, he kept ladling gin down her throat. Oh, oh so good, but poor Eliza. I mean, it's this great reminder that there's so much more to how we speak than our accents. And it seems fitting that she's played by Audrey Hepburn, right? Because imagine if we said, we should all aspire to look like Audrey Hepburn. You know, we've evolved a whole vocabulary and resources and curriculums to talk about the fact that we shouldn't force people to all look one particular way. But what if we made more room for people to speak in different ways? You know, the Eliza Doolittles and everyone. That's it for today. Our sound designer is Tina Toby. We had editing help from Julia Barton. This is the last episode of this season of Subtitle. We're extremely grateful to everyone who's partnered with us. The Linguistic Society of America, the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, public radio shows, the world, here and now, and Weekend All Things Considered. And we have a lot of people to thank. But before that, we want to thank you, all of you, for rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Subtitle. If you haven't done it yet, please do it and help spread the word. Thanks to Tinku Ray, Kate Ellis, Matthew Bell, William Troop, Ashley Cleek, Jeremy Helton, Tracy Strain, Carol Zoll, Rupa Shanoi, Philip Martin, Alina Simone, Nina Porzuki, Jennifer Gorin, Alison Reed, David Robinson, Lydia Imanolidu, April Calix Cattell, and Kirk Chow. Also, Joshua Dees, Bertie Baron, Jenna Moniz, Dora Ahmad, Barbara Bullock, Lynn Murphy, Jacqueline Toribio, Jackie Mao, Nola Cox, Sally Pillay, Julie Sedevi, Isabel Hibbard, Sam Fleming, Paul Peterson, Wade Rausch, Tamar Avishai, Zachary Davis, and everyone at Hub and Spoke. And all of our friends at the PRX Podcast Garage. We hope you guys open up again soon. A big thanks also to our primary funder, the National Endowment for the Humanities. We'll be back soon with more stories about languages and the people who speak them. Bye for now. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.